0: It was good to see many of you guys made it back out this week. I was a little concerned after what we put you through last week outside that we wouldn't see any more folks from outside services, but praise the Lord he gave us good weather today and uh, an opportunity to praise him, right? It's a good thing, the psalmist says, I was glad when they said, let's go to the house of the Lord so we might worship the Lord together and so. It's a good thing to be able to come together as God's people and to give him thanks and to give him honor. And it's a good thing that the Lord is so kind that he wants to speak to us. So we do this morning. We, we hear from God in his word. And this morning, we finish, at least for the time being, our uh, trek through Matthew, at least for the, the rest of this, this year. We've been going through Matthew the last two years, walking slowly through this account of Jesus's life, who he is what he's done for us, and who we are in him. So we've been walking slowly through this book, and this morning we'll kind of finish up chapter 17. We'll take a break, and then we'll jump back to chapter 18 in a few months. The reason we're doing this is because Matthew has a certain structure. It's, it's broken up into five different sermons in different places, and so when we start back up in Matthew, we'll start back up at the fourth sermon or section in Matthew's gospel where Jesus gives instruction, starting in Matthew 18. There's one over in Matthew 17, so if you have your Bible, would you turn with me to Matthew chapter 17. All right, we take this for granted, but just in case someone's new to the Bible, right? Matthew was the first book in the in the, in the New Testament. All right, you kind of vary to the Bible, the big number 17 is the chapter verse, and these smaller numbers are the verse numbers. We take that good stuff for granted, but just to let you know you're kind of way around the Bible. And if you don't have a Bible of your own, and you would like one, we love to give you a Bible as a gift from our church. So just see me after service, and we happily give you your own copy of God's word. Matthew chapter 17, we'll look at verse verses 14 through 27 this morning. And when they came to the crowd, a man came up to him and kneeling before him said, Lord, have mercy on my son, for he has seizures and he suffers terribly. For he often falls into the fire and often into the water. And I brought him to your disciples and they could not heal him. And Jesus answered, oh, faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you to bring him here to me? And Jesus rebuked the demon and it came out of him. And the boy was healed instantly. Then the disciples came to Jesus privately and said, why could we not cast it out? He said to them, because of your little faith. For he said to them, because of your little faith, for truly I say to you, if you have faith like a grain of mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it will move, and nothing will be impossible for you. As they were gathering in Galilee, Jesus said to them, the son of man, is about to be delivered into the hands of men and they will kill him and he will be raised on the third day. And they were greatly distressed. When they came to Capernaum, the collectors of the two drachma tax went up to Peter and and said, does your teacher not pay the tax? He said, yes. And when he came into the house, Jesus spoke to him first saying, what do you think, Simon? From whom do kings of the earth take toll or tax? From their sons or from others? And when he said from others, Jesus said to him, then the sons are free. However, not to give offense to them. Go to the sea and cast a hook and take the first fish that comes up. And when you open its mouth, you will find a shekel. Take that and give it to them for me and for yourself. So if you look at this text, you, you might think it's kind of random, like these kind of random verses all grouped together with no coherent theme. But if we look closely at these verses, I think we see a few recurrent words and, and ideas that link these accounts. So for instance, you see the word son shows up in each section. We read the man's son who's suffering in verse 15. We read of the son of man who will suffer in verses 22 and 23. We read of the sons of the king of the kingdom in, in verses 25 and 26. And also in each section, we see a sort of bondage that's presented as a problem. In 14 through 20, demon possession has a hold. In 22 through 23, it's death. And in 24 through 27, it's attacks. All exists as having some kind of hold on people that, that needs to be broken out of. So I think there's some recurrent themes running through these verses, and here's what I think is the main point of them all, the main point of our passage this morning. Through faith in Christ, we are set free from bondage. Through faith in Christ, we are set free from bondage. As we walk through this passage, I I think we'll see that in in three distinct aspects or areas. Point number one, we, we see that through faith in Christ, we are set free from Satan's grip. You see that in verses 14 through 20. Point number two, through faith in Christ, we are freed from the fear of death. We see that in verses 22 through 23. And point number three, through faith in Christ, we can be freed from the law's demands. We see that in verses 24 through 27. So number one, through faith in Christ, we can be freed from Satan's grip, 14 through 20. Through faith in Christ, number two, we can be freed from the fear of death. We see that in verses 22 and 23. And then third, through faith in Christ, we can be freed from the law's demands. We see that in verses 24 through 27. First, through faith in Christ, we can be freed from Satan's grip. As we begin this passage, do you find yourself just struck at how drastically different this scene is from the previous scene? I mean, remember when we met Jesus and his three disciples last week? up on the mountain where Jesus revealed his transcendent glory, glory as of the only son of God. Peter and James and John were in awe as they looked upon him. And they were even more overwhelmed when a bright cloud overshadowed them. And God, the father spoke out of it, proclaiming, this is my beloved son. From that glorious scene, where the glory of Christ was on display, we have our heads taken, as it were, out of the clouds and brought back to reality where Jesus and these three are met with people and their problems. As Jesus and his men come back down to the crowds, we find one man in particular comes up to Jesus. He comes humbly kneeling before Jesus in verse 14. He comes respectfully, calling him Lord in verse 15. He comes desperately, asking Jesus to have mercy on his son. This man sounds a lot like the Canaanite woman we met back in chapter 15. She, too, had a child who needed urgent care. And she, too, desperately sought help for her child. And she, too, pleaded to Jesus to have mercy on her child. You know, I think one small thing we see in comparing these two accounts is that women and men, mothers and fathers, equally care for their children. Or at least they should. We need to reject the kind of toxic thinking that, about families that permeates our cultures and has unfortunately found a place in our communities that says that moms are the only ones who are really involved in their children's lives are the ones that really care for them. Fathers are nowhere to be found. Well, here you have a man, a father, who owns his responsibility as a parent and who models what that looks like. Friends, real men care about their children. Real men care for their children. Real men cry out to Jesus to help their children. We want to be a church that believes that and that models that. That this man's child needs help is highlighted by the description of his condition. And notice the seriousness here. He has seizures and suffers terribly. And he often falls into the fire and often falls into the water. If this boy doesn't get help soon, he's going to kill himself. Either being burned to death or drowned. With these dire issues, this father takes them to jesus trusting that he can help he believes that with all these issues facing his son jesus can provide some solutions but notice in verse 16 that jesus is actually his second stop he'd gone to the front line employees first but they couldn't fix the situation and so he demands let me speak to your manager He says in verse 16, I brought my son to your disciples, but they couldn't heal him. Now, why did this man go to the disciples in the first place? Why not just go straight to Jesus? Well, Because Jesus wasn't around. He was up on the mountaintop with Peter and with James and John. Yet below, problems remained. Real ministry remained down on the ground. But Jesus was missing. That's how we can be tempted to react, isn't it? Wasn't that how Martha and Mary reacted in John chapter 11? Their brother Lazarus had been sick and they called for Jesus to to come help, but he was off somewhere again with his disciples. And Lazarus ends up dying. And when Jesus finally comes to the sisters, how do they greet greet him? If you had been here, My brother would not have died. They recognized Jesus' power and thought that his presence would have prevented their brother's passing. Here we might excuse this man if he had the same kind of thoughts. His son is suffering and Jesus has the power to help him. I mean, he's already done so much for so many people. But when I need Jesus, really need him in the most desperate of situations, he's nowhere to be found. You ever had those thoughts? When situations are hard, tragic even, yet Jesus is distant? Or is he? Is he ever so far away that he can't help? That he won't help? Well, reading this account, you might think so. As his understudies, his disciples in Jesus' absence, aren't able to do anything to help this man's son. Again, verse 16, he brought him to them, but they could not heal him, which is somewhat surprising. Because back in chapter 10, verse one, Jesus called these 12 disciples and he gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal every disease and every affliction. He explicitly charged them in chapter 10, verse 8. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse lepers, cast out demons. So why weren't they able to display such power now? Well, they'd ask that question in, in verse 19. And Jesus answers in verse 20. But he hits at it even here in verse 17. Because of faithlessness, which in general characterized all the people of Israel at the time faithless generation. The disciples failure prompts Jesus to think of the nation as a whole's failure, to fully trust in him, to rely on his power. Yes, we see some instances of faith in Matthew's gospel, but they are sadly not the norm. Even his own disciples who've been with him, who've seen so many of his works, who've been instructed by his words, fail to show the kind of faith that totally depends on Jesus. And it warrants Jesus's lament. How long am I to bear with and be with this unbelieving generation? But notice, it doesn't warrant Jesus's neglect. The failure of his disciples to heal the man's son which demonstrates their and the people's failure to totally trust in him doesn't harden Jesus's heart. Thank God that every act of our unbelief isn't met by Jesus's ultimate rejection. Now, where the disciples have failed, where the nation as a whole has failed to trust him, Jesus responds with compassion, not get away from me, But bring your son here to me. The man does. And verse 18 tells us Jesus rebuked the demon and it came out of him and the boy was healed instantly. A demon? Does that surprise you there in verse 18? I mean, up in verse 15, it just said that the boy had severe seizures. If you just read the description there, you have any medical knowledge at all, or any family history with such sickness at all, or any time binge watching ER or Grey's Anatomy, you know that this ain't nothing more than a case of epilepsy. Right. But here go Christians again, trying to spiritualize what's natural and normal, associating demon possession with the regular old disease. That's what a skeptic might say. Perhaps that's what the skeptic inside of you is saying right now. But have you ever followed the opposite line of thinking? There go skeptics again, trying to normalize and naturalize that which is spiritual, acting as if the fruit that's seen on the surface is never indicative of a deeper spiritual root. Have you ever considered that even your skepticism at what the Bible says could be an indicative of a deeper inward problem inside of you. There's no doubt that real sicknesses and diseases exist and not all of them are indicative of some demon possession, but some of them may be. And especially those that the scriptures explicitly tell us are such. I mean, we see that in Matthew on several occasions. In Matthew chapter 9, verse 32, we meet a demon-possessed man who was mute. And when Jesus cast out the demon, the man spoke. In Matthew chapter 12, verse 22, we meet a demon-possessed man who was blind and mute. And when Jesus healed him, the man saw and spoke. Friends, sometimes what we see on the outside as simply a physical problem has a greater inward reality. We want to be be careful not to assume a one-to-one connection every time. But we also want to be careful not to fall into the line of thinking that dismisses the spiritual realm. Friends, sin, the devil, demons, darkness are all around us. Spiritual forces are real and at work. Try as you may to live in a strictly physical realm, Sooner or later, you'll be met with spiritual realities such as this one. that Though there's not always a one-to-one correlation, all sickness is a result of sin. Now, let me explain. I don't mean that if you get a cold, it's because of some sin in your life. Right? That's not what I mean. Do you not hear me saying that? I do mean, however, that there would be no cold. No COVID, no seizures, no sickness, if sin never came into the world. But it has, and it's affected everything. Friends, we live in a fallen world. Don't let the glitz and the glamour on TV or on social media fool you. Put as much of a filter on it as you want. This world is fallen, and the effects of sin are all over the place. And the prince of sin, Satan, And his demonic forces are all over the place, terrorizing people. We see it here in this passage. Satan has gripped this boy through demon possession and seemingly cannot be controlled. I mean, the boy can't control him. He goes into these fits and throws himself into the water or to the fire. And the disciples can't control him either. They try to help the boy to cast out the demon. But well, they couldn't. But friends, Satan is not uncontrollable. His force is not unconquerable. God is greater than the devil. Amen. Let me say that again because sometimes we act like, like that ain't true. God is greater than the devil. God in the flesh. Jesus Christ has has his way here with the devil. He rebukes the demon. Instantly it came out, and instantly the boy was healed. Saints, so trust in Christ to fight your fiercest battles, to defeat your most dangerous enemies. Which brings us back to why the disciples couldn't do what Jesus eventually did, cast out the demon because of their lack of trust. They ask in verse 19 what prevented them from being able to cast out the demon. Seemingly surprised that they couldn't do it. Again, Jesus had given them the power to do so back in chapter 10. And maybe by this point, they'd gone on missions and exhibited that power. But why not now? We'll look at verse 20. Because of your little faith, Jesus says. Which probably refers to the quality of their faith rather than the quantity of it. I mean, Jesus will say that, that faith, the size of a small mustard seed, is enough to do mighty things like move a mountain. It's not the size of their faith in Jesus that, that he criticizes, but the nature of it. It's poor, weak, defective. Why? Well, probably because it's resting partly on Jesus, but partly on their own strength as well. In Mark's account of this story, in Mark chapter 9, verse 29, Jesus responds to the disciples' question here by saying, this kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. It's actually included as verse 21 in in some translations of Matthew. It was inserted probably later by scribes to harmonize Matthew's account with Mark's account. But it's not found in the best and the oldest manuscripts. And so you see that there's no verse 21 here in Matthew. See a little explanatory footnote at the bottom if you have an ESV Bible. But in any case, Mark tells us that prayerlessness was part of Jesus' response to why the disciples couldn't cast out this demon. A couple of that with, with Jesus' reply of, of their little faith or weak faith or deficient faith, and you get a fuller picture of the problem. It seems that the disciples had started to view and do ministry I mean, Jesus had given them power. So perhaps they got into the routine of rolling out of bed in the morning, running through the Palestinian streets, ready to meet any challenge that came their way. Only here they meet a challenge that they could not conquer on their own. I wonder if it sounds familiar. I wonder if we, as Jesus' disciples as his followers have gotten into the bad habit of unhitching ourselves from daily, moment by moment, trusting in Jesus. We wake and start our days without praying. We walk through each day without meditating on Jesus' word. We go through and face trials and temptations without remembering that we are indwelled by his spirit. No wonder we find ourselves inept at loosening sins and Satan's grip on us. While we feel enslaved to social media, in bondage to pornography, unable to tame our tongues, powerless to control angry outbursts at our kids or our spouses. How often do we go about our days assuming Jesus' powerful presence with us rather than totally relying and resting upon it? Jesus shows up here and shows us all you need me. You can't do life without me. You can't do ministry without me. Apart from me, you can do nothing. But through faith in me, even the smallest seed of faith in me, a great God, you can move mountains. Nothing will be impossible for you. That's not a carte blanche promise that everything will go your way if you have enough faith. Don't listen to teachers who tell you that. Turn them off. It's not a promise that you should should go and try and literally move mountains as a test of your faith. But rather to say that something as firm and seemingly fixed as mountains like sin in your life or the devil's hold on some area in your life is no match for the power of Christ in your life. Let this testimony of Jesus securing this young boy's freedom move your heart to trust in him, to rest in his power. Through faith in Christ, saints, we can be freed even from Satan's grip. Point number two, through faith in Christ, we can be freed from fear of death. Through faith in Christ we can be freed from fear of death. Bear with me at verses 22 and 23. As they were gathering in Galilee Jesus said to them the son of man is about to be delivered into the the hands of men and they will kill him and he will be raised on the third day and they were greatly distressed. We see here the the second explicit reference Jesus makes to his death. You might remember back in the last chapter after Peter confessed Jesus to be the Christ, Jesus revealed to his disciples that he would suffer and be killed and on the third day be raised. Here he echoes almost the exact same language. Only here he adds in verse 22 that he would be delivered into the hands of men. His death wouldn't simply be an instance of being in the wrong place at the wrong time. Rather, there would be an intentionality behind putting Jesus to death. He would be betrayed, handed over to be killed. Well, that was why he came in the first place. That was why he came to earth, to give his life for his people. And Matthew 1.21 tells us that he came to save his people from their sins and he did it by giving his life in our place. I mean, lest we think that Jesus was powerless to prevent himself from being delivered to death, stop and remember what's just happened. He's just done what no other man could do, what none of his disciples could do, cast out an uncontrollable demon to keep a young boy alive. Well, will he all of a sudden lose his power so that he can't keep himself alive? Of course not. Of course not. Yes, Jesus will be delivered over to men, but only because he chose to be delivered over. They only took what Jesus gave. He came to suffer and die the most gruesome of deaths, to be killed on a cross for us. Now, why does Jesus say this again here in this place? We don't know for sure, but it's as if Jesus wants to continue to remind his disciples of what's to come, what's ahead. To prepare them and to produce in them a greater trust in him. I mean, don't lose a sight of the fact that we call these men Jesus' disciples because Jesus is constantly discipling them. He means to teach them about himself and about his purpose, to move their hearts from being fixated on the things of this world, from being fearful of the things in this world, and instead to have firm faith in him. And what is it that tempted these men to fear above all else? What well, is the same thing that casts fear on all mankind. Death. Death. Hebrews chapter 2 verse 15 says that through fear of death, we are all subject to lifelong slavery or bondage. Ten out of ten people live and die. And as we said a few weeks ago, that's not the way it's supposed to be. Death is the penalty, the consequence for sin. But here is one who's come to save us from our sins. To free us from death. And yet he too says he will be killed and die. There's no hope. No rescue from death's reign, it seems. The results? The end of verse 23 tells us the disciples were greatly distressed. Deeply grieved. That's the appropriate response to death. If you know what death is, death is terrible. One author comments, death is the great interruption, tearing loved ones away from us. Death is the great schism, ripping apart the material and immaterial parts of our being and separating a whole person who was never meant to be disembodied, even for moments." moment. Death is the great insults because it reminds us that we are mere worm food. Gold-plated caskets don't make it any prettier. Calling funeral services celebrations don't make it any less painful. Death is dark. The disciples, deep distress in the face of it, acknowledges that fact. For they are so overcome with grief They've missed an even more important fact, that death is not ultimate. Yes, Jesus says he will be delivered into the hands of men and they will kill him, but he will be raised on the third day. Jesus never leaves himself in the grave when he talks about his death and neither should we. He rose from the grave, breaking free from the chains and the bondage of death. Friends, all those who place their faith in him, in his sacrificial death and resurrection for us, are united with him. To his death and his resurrection, to a new life. And we too, though we die, will rise from the grave. Notice how often Jesus is doing this in these few chapters in Matthew. He means to tell his disciples of the gruesome reality of this life, but of the glorious reality of a new life. That's why he talks about his death and resurrection. That's why he shows them his glory on the mountain. Where I am, you will be also. I don't know about you, but each day and each week, you need that kind of hope to settle your heart in the midst of some mess, in the midst of some tragedy. Jesus Christ will not leave you alone. No, he takes you to where he is and shows you where you will be in glory one day. As we need to remember that as Christ reminds us where we'll be, reminds us of the glorious reality that will be ours. Death is, is, is real. but It will not be awesome for us. We believe in Jesus, that is. That's the only promise that we have that will be with him if we believe in him. For those of us who put our faith in him, we know where we'll be. And so what does that produce in us? What should it produce in us? Well, it should produce a boldness to live for and to testify of this risen Christ who gave his life for sinners like us. It should make us unafraid of what people might say or what they might do. I mean, the worst they can do is kill us, but that's only temporary. Resurrection to eternal life is ours. Only the. If you know Jesus. If you're here this morning, you know yourself not to be a Christian. Bondage to death for you remains. And friend, you should be afraid. You know, you don't need to put on a kind of a firm face or a bold face. I can put up with anything. No, you need to be scared of this. Because the Bible says that what comes after death is judgment. God will hold you accountable and punish you for every single wrong and rebellion that you've done against him. Can you count them all? God can, and he will judge you. on. But that does not have to be your end. That's not what God wants to be your end. He sent his son, Jesus Christ, into the world to save you, to die for you, and to rise up three days later for you. Friends, if you turn from your sins and put your trust in this Christ, Today, you can be saved from the wrath of God. You can be saved from the fear of death. And you can be saved for the purpose for which God created you, to freely live under his rule, instead of constantly rebelling against it. The third and final thing we see in this passage is that we, through faith in Christ, are free from the law's demands. Point number three, through faith in Christ, we are freed from the law's demands. As we come to this last section, we're met with a few questions. For one, what is a drachma? We see there in verse 24, the collectors come and ask Peter, does their teacher pay the two drachma tax? A drachma was a Greek coin valued at one fourth of a shekel the Jewish unit of currency. So two drachmas will be equal to half a shekel. Now, why is that important? Because a half a shekel was the sum that God prescribed to the children of Israel in Exodus to pay for the service of the tabernacle. In Exodus chapter 30, verse 13, God says, each one who was numbered in the census shall give this, half a shekel, according to the shekel of the sanctuary, a half a shekel as an offering to the Lord. Everyone who is numbered in the census from 20 years old and upward shall give the Lord's offering. The Lord says later a few verses in, in, in verse 17, you shall give it for the service of the tent of meeting or the tabernacle. Now that's important background because this tax that these collectors come asking about in Matthew 17 is not a tax collected by Rome for civil purposes. It's It's a tax that's been carried over and collected by the Jews for religious purposes, for upkeeping now, not the tabernacle, but the temple. Now, why would these men ask Peter if Jesus was going to pay the tax? Well, because Jesus has come and challenged the Jewish way of doing things, the Jewish rituals all along. I mean, remember back in chapter eight, he he did the unthinkable. He touched a leper. And in chapter 12, he set off a firestorm when he healed a man on the sacred Sabbath. He seemingly was not following the Jewish conventions or the Jewish law. And so these men asked, will he follow the law about the temple tax? Peter speaks up quickly, perhaps uh, without giving it much thought. Yes he says at the beginning of verse 25. You all have him all wrong. He might do some unconventional things, but at the end of the day, he's a good law-abiding Jew. Of course he'll pay the temple tax. Where did Peter get such an assumption? Probably not from Jesus. As we read further in verse 25, we read that Peter comes into the house and before he can say anything about his previous interaction that he's just had with the, the tax collectors, Jesus brings up the subject to him. Now, how did Jesus know already that was going on? Did he overhear in the house but he's speaking loudly outside? We don't know. It doesn't really matter. We, we've already seen in this book that Jesus knows people's thoughts even before they speak words. He asked Peter in verse 25, What do you think? From whom do kings of the earth take Toll or tax from sons or from others? It's a question that Jesus poses by way of analogy. The kings of the earth, the the rulers of this land, whom do they collect, collect taxes from? Do they collect it from their sons, their heirs, or from their subjects? From others. And Peter says rightly in verse 26 from others. I mean, no king imposes taxes on the members of his own family. Instead, they're they're for those under his reign and his kingdom. And Jesus acknowledges Peter's right answer. Uh, Yes, taxes are collected from others. And so the logical conclusion then is that the sons are free. Okay, so so what's the point? What are you getting at, Jesus? Well, Well, the point is this. If the kings of the earth don't tax their earthly sons, then neither does the king of heaven impose taxes on his heavenly son. Amen. Yes, others may be required to pay taxes for the upkeep of the temple, for God's house, but I'm not some stranger or visitor in house. Mm. I'm a member of the household. All right. I'm God's unique son. Right. Therefore, I'm exempt from paying the temple tax. Mm. And not only... Am I exempt from paying the tax as God's son? But what the tax was for, the tabernacle, the temple, both point to me. Right. I am the very place where God now meets with his people on earth. All these laws and rules point forward to me. Jesus had come to fulfill all that the Old Testament laws and religious rituals pointed to. He had come to establish a new way to relate to God, not through obedience to law, not through attendance in the temple, but through allegiance to his son. And saints, through allegiance with him, through faith in Christ, we too become sons. Don't you see why union with Christ is so important? When you trust in Christ, your life becomes intertwined with his. You get all the rewards of Christ, like resurrection from the grave to eternal life. And you get all the rights of Christ to be treated like he is, as sons of God. Jesus was showing here in seed form that in him, we are no longer bound to rituals and rules of the Old Testament law. You see, because if Jesus can be so bold as to say that as sons, we are not bound to to pay the temple tax, then that means that we are not bound to the other duties as it relates to the temple as well. The many offerings and the sacrifices for which the temple was constructed. Jesus wasn't simply taking one item off the menu He was saying that bondage to the law is no longer over those who are in him. He is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes in him. Saints, that's good news. Because we could never keep all the demands of the law. It would only condemn us. But in Christ, we have freedom. Freedom from the demands of the Old Testament law. Not to live however we want, but to live for the glory of God and to live for the good of others. I think we see that in verse 27. Now we can spend time examining this strange miracle that Jesus talks about here. Instructing Peter to go to the sea and and fetch the first fish that he finds. He found a shekel in his mouth, enough to pay the tax for both he and Peter. It's a strange account, very interesting, but that's not the main emphasis, how Jesus provides to pay the tax. The main emphasis is that Jesus intends to pay the tax. I mean, even though he doesn't have to, even though he's free as God's son, not bound to pay this tax, he still pays it. Why? We'll look at the beginning of verse 27 so as not to give offense to the people. Jesus introduces a hugely important principle here, that though we're not bound to certain customs and practices, we might still nonetheless follow them, not for our own sake, because we have to, but for the sake of others. Jesus cares about not giving unnecessary offense that would trip others up from focusing on him he's shown elsewhere that he's not opposed to giving any kind of offense i mean back in chapter 15 when the disciples told him that the pharisees were offended by him saying that what you eat can't defile you jesus did not walk back his words and apologize but this isn't that it's not the same level of thing these tax collectors were just doing their jobs They weren't the religious leaders trying to impose and implement a whole system based on external religion. And so so as not to stumble them, Jesus decides to go on and pay the temple tax. If they are to stumble, Jesus wants it to be about his message of salvation, not about a relatively minor sum of money given for a temporary tax. Yes, he was freed from paying it, but he used his freedom to serve others. Saints, so that's instructive for us. In Christ, we are freed from so much. Freed from the laws about the Sabbath. Freed from Old Testament dietary laws. Freed from specific commands about temple taxes and all the rest. But how do we use our freedom? As a sword, do we swing around flaunting to others that we ain't bound to nothing but Jesus? Or does our freedom in Christ allow us to more freely love, to more freely sacrifice our rights as sons and daughters in Christ for the sake of others? That's how the apostle Paul lived. No longer bound to the law, but living for those who were under it. To the Jews, he says in 1 Corinthians 9, I became a Jew in order to win Jews. To those under the law, I became as one under the law, that I might win those under the law. To those outside the law, I became as one outside the law, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside the law. To the weak, I became weak, that I might become weak or win the weak. I have become all things to all people that by all means I might save some. Where did he get such a mindset for ministry? From Jesus laying down his rights for the sake of others. Says I praise God for the, the ways we've done that in our church. I think of small things like COVID restrictions especially. Although we might have rights to do certain things for the sake of our brothers and sisters in the church, for the sake of our witness in our community, we brave the heat and the wind and the cold to have outdoor services. We wear uncomfortable masks. We, we do all that kind of stuff, not because God commands us to, but because we don't want to give any undue offense over small matters. That would in any way hinder our witness to proclaim far greater matters salvation in Christ alone. Mm -hmm. And in many other ways, we can model this in our stances on food, diets, and voting, and social action, and raising our kids, and all the rest. In Christ, we are free free from bondage to all the Old Testament laws and their specific dietary and ceremonial prescriptions. And in Christ, We are freed, freed to live a life that all those laws aimed at. Love for God and love for our neighbor. Jesus has shown us the way and he's given us strength to follow him. So let us live as his disciples, modeling him, trusting in him all the days that he gives us so that others too might find and rejoice in the freedom that we have in Jesus. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for Jesus Christ loosening the the bonds of sin, Satan, of death, of the law, so that we might live freely to you. Lord, we pray that you would help us to live as those who are no longer bound, but are free For us to use our freedom to serve and to love others. Lord, we pray that through the proclamation of your word and the witness of your people, that you might break some free this morning who are in bondage. We pray this for your glory. In Jesus' name.